as I've, as I've been focusing on, on looking at Jesus' daily encounters with people, I've been reminded that, that we don't have a lot in the biblical record of mundane or trivial things. Now, I know we can't record every moment of, you know, 12 disciples and Jesus and all the people and all and the scriptures pretty clear that the volumes would would be way, way too massive to record everything. But but we don't have a lot in that whole idea of mundane and trivial unless you include all the walking that was done. Right. And you have that in your brain that they, they walked everywhere they went um, and, and maybe a nap or two, right? I mean, and I appreciate the fact that naps got included in Scripture. Um, that, that's a good thing. And there's possibly a few other things that are there. But what's interesting is even when some of these things get mentioned that might be a little bit mundane, might be a little bit trivial, they don't stay there. I mean, even when you think about just the, the walking that went on and the number of conversations that are recorded about them going from one place to another, the questions the disciples ask, even the nap in the boat and what took place after that, they, they don't stay there. And the reason for that is that Jesus' encounters on a daily basis were always more. There was, there was more to the life of Jesus than just living. We've defined those encounters with three points. Purposeful engagement, communicating to broken people that no matter what they've done, God desires to come near. Gospel presence, that environment where we deal with people in their sin, where it's safe for them as sinners, but sin is not welcome. Meaningful impact. It's for the good of those that are separated from God. We oppose and reject anything meant to harm them or to continue their separation. That's the, the points that we've seen in the daily life of Jesus. And as we've looked over these past few weeks at, at these particular things, I, I keep asking this question, what does it look like for a day in my life? What does it look like for a day in your life? to look like a day in the life of Jesus. What is, what is his desire? What is his expectation for you and for me, for purposeful engagement? To bring that gospel presence near. To see him make meaningful impact in the lives of people. What does it look like for him to take the mundane and the trivial things of life and turn it into an explosive, eternal opportunity. This morning we're going to look at something that happens quite often with Jesus as he interacts with people, no matter what their station of life, no matter what their spiritual condition. And what, what we're going to see is, is how Jesus um, approaches people and how people approach Jesus with, with questions. And, and how he often gives them in their questioning unexpected responses. The beauty of this is that as, as he responds, the purposeful engagement is, is there. The gospel presence is seen and, and the meaningful impact on the lives of people 
is a parent. We're going to be in John chapter 6. Now, I, I want you to be clear that this idea of unexpected responses is not like when I was a kid with my mom. Um, my mom was a, a wonderful, wonderful mother. But Dean and I often comment that doing something with my mom or getting my mom to make a decision or do those things. And I'm not talking about later in life. I'm talking about from the time I can remember. It was kind of like nailing jello to a wall. You just can't do it, right? And, and it was the same way a lot of times when I would ask her a question, right? I, I, I'm asking her, I say, I'd say something like, Mom, can, can I go out with some of my friends later this evening, right? And her response would be along this line, Hey, I think we're going to have chicken for dinner. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times that happened. And, and even as I was thinking about this, it was just flooding through my mind. The number of questions that I asked her as a kid and, and even as an adult. And, and, and she would give these unexpected... And it wasn't because her brain wasn't functioning. It's... I, I don't know what it was. I really don't. It was just always unexpected. But that's not what we're talking about today with Jesus, right? <laughs> Jesus had been in Bethesda, or some translations give it Bethsaida, and there he encountered a man who had been ill for 38 years. He'd been waiting by this pool to be healed because there was a stirring that took place with the water, and anyone that got into the pool when that was going on would, would be healed. He had been waiting, though, by this pool seemingly in futility because he was unable to go into the water. He had nobody to put him in there. He couldn't get there himself before someone else did. Jesus had a conversation with him, kind of got the scoop on what his life had been, and then he just healed him. In a later meeting with this same guy in the temple, Jesus dealt with him on a deeper level more important level, more eternal level. He simply told him, do not sin anymore. And for all this, John tells us this is what Jesus got, right? I mean, you would think that it would be a wonderful thing. Everybody would be happy about it. Everybody would be thrilled by the fact that this guy had gotten healed. 38 years they've watched this man's life and he can't, I mean, it's a sad story. In John 5, John says, For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. <laughs> because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself to be equal with God. So you would think in that moment of time, Jesus' response would have been to maybe tone it down a little bit. Right? I mean, they're seeking to kill him. He knew it. Words were going around, these little side conversations. He, he would tone it down. No. You, you would think maybe that he would keep his head down, fly under the radar just a little bit. You would think maybe he would avoid stirring the pot. He didn't. He went on to talk openly about the resurrection. He talked about how those who did good deeds... Righteous deeds and how those who do evil deeds will fare in the resurrection. Not only of the, the body, but to be resurrected in, in, in the presence of the Almighty God. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure this was not well received by many that were there. Then he finished with four convincing proofs. He was talking about who he is and, and how things are. The witness of John was one, the witness of his works, the miracles were another that he talked about, the witness of the Father and how God had said he was who he is, and then the witness of Scripture and all that it said about him. Now, I know they didn't have mics in this time frame, but when Jesus started all of this and he heals the guy and then he goes into this confrontation and these people are seeking to kill him and he keeps going, he doesn't tone it down, he, he doesn't do anything to keep his head down, he doesn't do anything to avoid stirring the pot, and, and the final thing is he makes this incredible group of statements from what John has said and the miracles that he's done and what God the Father had, had done and said through uh, about him and then the witness of Scripture, it would almost be that it would be a perfect time to take the mic and just write like this. Chapter 6 begins with him feeding 5,000 men and their families from five loaves of bread and two fish. And the people that he was feeding in this moment of time were so despairing in life they were, they were so done with their current leadership and, and the oppression that was there in, in their everyday life situation. And, and they were so impressed with Jesus and, and how what he had just done could possibly change their life situation that the scripture gives us indication they, they wanted to make him king and they, they wanted to do so by force. So he rejected the thought and, and left in order to have some alone time. His disciples at that point decided to get into a boat and cross the sea and go to Capernaum. It was dark and after waiting a little while, Jesus wasn't coming to the boat and, and there was no sign that he was there, so they finally left. It wasn't a very long trip. This, this slide gives you a little bit of indication. Bethsaida was up where the red dot is and Capernaum a little bit to the left. Maybe, maybe four or five miles um, of walking if you were going to do it. But it was at night. And also there was, there was storms. Um, they, they started rowing this boat. And, and even though it was a relatively short row and they were used to doing this kind of thing, the wind was blowing and the seas were being stirred up and all this was going on. So after about three or four miles of rowing against the wind, against the sea, in this storm, they see Jesus walking on the water, coming toward them. They were afraid. Jesus calmed them down. And so they received him into the boat, and the scripture records that immediately the boat was at the land with which they were going. Pretty incredible, right? This is where we're going to pick up our, our text today in John 6, verse 22. It says, the next day, day in the life of Jesus, right? See what we did there? The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came another small, other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate bread 
after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, what question would be in your mind right now? Just think about it. After reading what I just did, what what question would be in your mind right now? This is their question. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I thought about that for a second. That wouldn't have even been close to the question that I would have asked. But it was the one that they asked because the last time they had seen him was in the region of Bethsaida late in the evening. Now, Now, why they didn't ask How did you get here, right? That seems the context of the passage more. How did you get here? I'm not sure of that, but he was there. It it seemed a little odd to them. They were curious, so they asked, hoping to get information, whatever their reasons were. So I want us to note something here, and that is where Jesus is present, people are curious. Where Jesus is present, people are curious. Whether they loved him or hated him, there were not many indifferent to him throughout the gospel accounts. So what does Jesus do? He satisfies their curiosity with an unexpected response. Not quite like my mom, but an unexpected response. Remember the question, when did you get here? That was their question. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Now imagine this scenario, right? The people are all standing there. Jesus is in whatever place he is near them. And they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And this is what he responds. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. Right? Doesn't answer their question. They're, what would you be doing in that moment of time? Would you be a little thrown off as to why he didn't tell you that? Now, now we could assume a lot here, like, like Jesus thought it was, it's none of their business. I'm not telling them anything. None of their business. Could be. Maybe it was because he didn't want to explain to them that he had just walked on water and immediately made a boat get to the land because they were already trying to make him king, right? Maybe he was just really tired of really dumb questions. We've all been there. It's probably best not to assume. What I, what I want us to note here is that Jesus engages the curious with insight and with truth. Whether they really wanted or even needed to know his travel schedule, that wasn't on the mind of Jesus. He was, he was much more focused. He, he cut to the heart of the matter of their motives and, and, and their focus on temporary material things, making them understand that those motives, that view of life was inferior to true life. What he was offering them 
was so much more than just the meal that they had had. Without missing a beat, though, and acting as if their original question was irrelevant, and and responding to this spiritual challenge that Jesus gave them, right? that's, That's what he did in his response to them. They ask him this, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Remember where this started. When did you get here? And now we're already at this moment where they're saying, okay, got to regroup here. He's not going to answer that question, but he's answering this question. So now we've got to come back with something. What shall we do so that we may do the works of God? It it was ingrained in them, in in their religious life, that they would pursue life, eternal life, through doing stuff. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19 asked Jesus something similar to this. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So it was in their their collective mental conscience, religiously, that, that they had to do these things. The rich young ruler was expecting a task, something that he could work to do to gain him merit or gain him favor. Now, Jesus, with these people, knowing that their bent was this, brings truth to bear in another unexpected response. So, what shall we do so that we may do the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, he could have said to them, well, the works of God are to, you know, go and, and uh, help the poor, and right? He could have done that. That's what they were expecting. That's, that's what they were going for. They wanted a checklist so that they could do all the things. And in another turn, Jesus gives them an unexpected response, telling them that you must believe in him who has been sent. What Jesus was making clear was that true salvation can never come from man's works. Paul said it this way, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Jesus was making it clear that true salvation does not come from works. So if if there was going to be any work from the question that they were asking by a man, it would only be to believe. To trust in the truth that salvation is by grace alone, Ephesians 2. Through faith alone, Romans 3. In Christ alone, Acts 4. This would have been truly unexpected by these folks. So what I want to note here is Jesus makes people more curious by his responses to them. By his life and who he is. They they could not think as they had always thought in their religious tradition. They, They could not do as they had always done in their religious tradition. They could not depend on what they had always depended in their religious tradition. It was a paradigm shift. And it was going on in a conversation. It was going on in a conversation where questions were being asked and answers were being given, but the answers being given were unexpected completely. It it turned everything on its head. They couldn't handle it. They they didn't know what to do in this moment. So they, they challenged Jesus 
by, by asking him. So here's their next question. What then do you do, Jesus, for a sign so that we may see and believe you? These are people that are just getting off of a big meal, right? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Though they had been given the answer to their question earlier, and, and the right response would have been to say, as the man who Mark records that came to Jesus saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief, right? They, they wanted, they, they needed more. Were, were they stubborn? Possibly. Were they rebellious? Likely. Or were they simply thrill seekers? Some probably were. Whatever the case, what we note here is that people often want something more to prove Jesus is who he says he is. I would imagine they, they thought their challenge was a pretty good one. And, and though it was wrapped in scripture, no less, it would have been good enough for Jesus to have responded by giving them what they want, right? So they, they issue this challenge. What, what works are you going to do? What, what, what are you going to do more to prove who you are? Because after all, this is what happened to our people by, by miraculous things, right? And they referenced Moses when they were talking about he gave them the manna. But Jesus, again, he, he doesn't respond as expected. There would be no walking on water to show them that he was who he was. There would be no taking some small fish and, and uh, some loaves of bread and making a big meal again for them in that moment. There would be no blind eyes being open in that moment. There would be no dead being raised in that moment. No, what he did was unexpected. He corrected their error. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but my father. They had given credit in the wrong place. And they were more enamored with the idea of what manna was, a temporary sustaining influence in the lives of the people in the Old Testament. And, and they were more enamored with that temporary thing than they were the eternal God who supplied it. Jesus continued, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
With the use of the, the present tense there, when, when Jesus said gives, he let them know that looking to the past, looking to temporary things like the manna was not where life is found. He, who had been given to them by God, was right in front of them, offering true life here and now. And, and that life was not just given for Israel like the manna was. That, that life was given to the whole world, to every nation, to every people group. That's how Jesus responded. And, and Jesus was doing more than simply correcting their error and their viewpoint. He was, uh, he was making sure that they understood what God had done in him to feed the souls of mankind. And, and what God was giving to mankind forever in him. It wasn't what they expected. Which reminds us, Jesus always gives the truth of what matters forever. What's sad here is that the only place they could go was to what they could touch, to what they could taste, to what would provide them temporary satisfaction. So this is what they said after Jesus makes these comments. Lord, give us this bread. Were they wanting another miracle? Is that what they were wanting? Were, were they hoping to get around believing in him? If I eat this bread, then it'll all happen to me as I take it internally. I won't even have to believe, right? I mean, what, what's going on in their minds? What's going on in their thought process? Whatever the case, their, their expectation was for Jesus to give them what they wanted. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So it was evident that they were looking for something different than Jesus, right? He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the, ones, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's a lot in this passage that we could delve into about salvation and eternity and the work of God and all of these things. Maybe for another day. As I, as I was walking through that, there was, there was something that I, I wish, and I, I often wish this of Scripture, it's, it's impossible, but I, I wish I could have known the tone in Jesus' voice in what he just said. I, I wish I could have known how he said it the vocal inflection or whatever. Because in my mind, as I read this portion of Scripture, I, I hear pleading. I am the bread of life. 
And, and yet at the same time I hear sadness in Jesus' voice. And, 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 and yet in, in, even in the sadness of that moment of time and them not understanding and getting it, I, I hear hope in, in, in what he's saying. And, and then I hear certainty about what is going to take place. And then I, I see the clarity at which he brings all of these things to all of these people. And then he follows it up at the end with more hope. I just wish I could have heard that in that moment of time like they did. What I note from it is this. Jesus always says to people what they need to hear, not always what they want to hear. There's something very practical for me in these unexpected responses of Jesus. And I, I think it's, it's really helpful to us because sometimes I think we can get stuck in a rut of conversation and, and our conversations always go the same way with the people that we're talking to. But if we want to be like Jesus and we want to make notes from how he lived day in, day out, what he did, then maybe, just maybe, we should, we should try to learn a little something from this that we would incorporate into our lives. So, so from the beginning of the passage, how would the presence of Jesus in our lives how would the presence of Jesus in our lives make people curious about him? Now, I'm not asking you to walk on water, right? First, I, I would think that there has to be a presence of Jesus in our lives. We have to have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. There, there has to be a presence of Jesus in our lives. Second, I would, I would think that in our daily life, we would need to be focused on Him. I would also think that getting tripped up with questions that sidetrack things and, and don't get to the heart of it, we don't really need to answer. Paul kind of put it like this, you know, you could get tripped up in all the genealogies, you can get tripped up in all of the stuff that everybody's talking about and, and whatever. And, you know, I mean, we, the, the fortunate thing is we don't have any avenues for that in our current culture, right? To get tripped up on things like that. I mean, there's, there's nothing that you can just go somewhere and read all the things that people are saying and they're all tripped up about and, and see even other people's comments on that and people's comments about the comments about the comments. Fortunately, we don't have to deal with that. If we choose. Our unexpected response, though, in, in how would the presence of Jesus make people curious? Our unexpected response would be to keep it about Jesus. Can you imagine conversations like that? Stuff about our life and, and somebody asking you why or how or, or when you, you do whatever you do and, and you keep it about Jesus. How would we go about engaging people with insight and truth in this formula of Jesus' life? First, we, we should always ask God to give us discernment in our relationships. We can also use what we know about humanity as a general starting place. And, and third, we can use biblical stories as transition. 
Imagine the conversation in the workplace, right? Now, I know you can't do this because you can get fired, but you can. And if you get fired, then the Lord will take care of you. I fully expect that someday we will all, before we die, experience some severe persecution if we stand for biblical truth. So I kind of expect that. But, but imagine this, this scenario. You're, you're, uh, you're in the office with somebody, you're in your workspace with somebody, and, and they say they're hungry, but they forgot to bring their lunch, and they're wondering where they're going to go or what they're going to eat or, you know, what's going on like that. And, and you transition with an unexpected response like, wouldn't it be cool if food just appeared like it did with Moses in the Bible? They're expecting you to say, hey, Taco Bell's got a twofer thing going up the street. It's only two minutes away. You can go up there and get something or whatever. And, and you come up with something that is totally unexpected. What, what would that do to their curiosity? Our unexpected responses should keep the gospel simple. doesn't have to be complicated. It can be something just that easy. Bringing the Bible, the truth of God's word to bear in a, in a, in a peculiar way. When people want proof of Jesus being who he says he is, what do we offer? First, we don't need to buy the premise that Jesus needs to do more. Right? So often when we're in a, a, an argument or we're in a conversation with somebody, they, they give this fact as it's fact, right? All people love Chick-fil-A. Okay, okay, okay. We don't have to buy the premise ever before filtering it through what we know to be true. So when people say they, they need Jesus to prove himself, they, they need him to do more, and, all right, we, we don't need to buy that premise. And second, we can give the reality of what's been done in us. How he has proved himself, if you will, over and over in the changing of who we are. Russ talked about it this morning in the, in the worship time and song. The, the changing over and over, the transformation. I'm not the same guy that I was. The third thing is if he's at work in the heart, truly in the individual that you're speaking to, he's already giving them proof. All you have to do is turn it back in and encourage them to trust him in what he's already doing. Our unexpected responses should be to trust God to do what only he can do and not try to defend him. When people want to hear what they want to hear, how do we focus them on what they need to hear? First, we have to make sure we know what they need to hear. His words, not ours, right? Second, we need to make sure not to shy away from what they actually need to hear, even if it's something hard to understand. If you read down in this chapter in John much further, you find out that Jesus actually does this again with people and he gives them something that's really, really hard. In fact, it says, this is a hard saying, who can do this? When he was talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. It's diff difficult. It was unexpected. It was crazy. It was wild. But when Jesus says things, even if they're hard, it's because they need to be said. 
The third thing, though, in that is that we need to say what we say with compassion. People are the way they are because they're broken. They're fallen. We need to say what we say with hope and certainty and clarity and even more hope, like what Jesus did that I said I, did, I wish I could have heard him. How he did that? So, what, what does it look like for me to function as Jesus did using unexpected responses? And I was thinking about that in the course of my life on a daily basis. Who I talk to, where I go, the kind of conversations I have and, and all of that. Um, how about this? When a conversation starts about the latest whatever, right? The weather, right? Something going on in the world. Maybe, maybe I could say, or maybe you could say, hey, we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. Can we mix it up today? What do you think about Jesus? Now, everybody is looking at me stunned for like, like deer in the headlights kind of thing because it, it, it would be quite awkward, a little, a little bit awkward, right? Did you hear what Jesus just did in John chapter 6? Every one of those questions that were asked to him, he gave them what the people would have considered very awkward answers for the questions asked. Could it be that that's an opportunity for us that maybe we haven't taken full advantage of in our lives, realizing that, hey, just bringing up something might turn the tide of conversation after conversation after conversation after conversation with the same people all the time about the same stuff that never goes anywhere eternally. What about a conversation when a controversial, cultural, or political topic comes up, right? Maybe you could say something like this. Hey, let's talk about something really controversial. Who is Jesus? Now, again, we're taking these things not... Not out of, of some evangelism training session. We're not taking these out of some, you know, how to grow the church session. We're taking these right out of the life of Jesus. Now, your unexpected responses may not be anything as I've suggested. But could it be that we need to take a page out of Jesus' method of living with an eternal focus, right? And mix it up a little bit with people. I've got one guy in mind right now that works at a local store that I go to all the time. And the Lord has been laying him on my heart. And, I'm, and, and I was thinking about it this week. Okay, next time I go into that place, that dude is going to get an unexpected response from me. Now, we talk all the time. I don't know, even, I don't know his first name. I don't know his last name. He doesn't know my first name. He doesn't know my last name. Why? Because I haven't taken the time to ask him. He calls me friend. He calls me buddy. He calls me pal. Right? And we don't even know each other. 
I've been thinking through how the next time when he says, hey man, how you doing? What's my unexpected response going to be? I'm actually kind of energized about it. I don't have it yet. So if you've got suggestions, you let me know. But what happens when I mix it up with that guy for just a minute? Could it be that God is already at work in that man's heart in some way, shape, or form? Right? A week ago, Hector had an opportunity with a, a young man in a store similarly. And talking about, I don't know, products and whatever he needed to buy to fix something at his house. He had seen the guy before. They start talking. And an unexpected response came from Hector when he asked the guy just out of the blue, hey, do you have a grandma? Guy was a little bit surprised. If you want to know the full story, Hector can give it to you. But guy was a little surprised. And eventually, it led to a conversation about grandma's praying for you, listening to what grandmas say about who Jesus is, and to a guy having to think very differently about his life than he would have five minutes earlier. Jesus did it. We can do it. What, what would happen this week for you, for me, if we employed Jesus' methodology of unexpected responses? Not getting sidetracked by temporary things, not continuing in the same old, mundane, trivial conversations without making them more. Continuing to stay focused on eternal things. This is what I know. It will give opportunity for the gospel in ways we've never imagined. The question is, are we ready to do it? I believe the Lord is desiring for us to interact just like he did. Which is why we're in this series. So, if you leave with nothing more than the two words, unexpected responses, this is what I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself this week. Is there a conversation that I have that's meaningless and driv- trivial and mundane and all of that stuff that I could change by just twisting the dial a little bit on what I say? And could we, by the Spirit of God, do that and see what he might want to do. I'm going to. And I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to let you know what happens. I don't know what day I'm going to go to that store. I mean, I want to go today. I don't know. But that, you know, I'm going to let the Lord lead that. But the next time, I want to. We live in an evil world. Wicked, perverse, all of those things. The testimony of the truth of Christ is more and more needed. The reality of life and what it is and how many people are entering eternity without a knowledge of of Christ is staggering to me. I don't think we can stay the same. I think we have to mix it up. I think we have to do some things like Jesus did. Not asking you to walk on water, just to use words. Lord, thank you for our our time today. And even as we go outside, 
We receive communion together, Lord, remembering who you are and, and what you accomplished on the cross. We have opportunity to be a part of this baptismal time, Lord, for some young people that want to publicly declare their, their desire to follow Jesus. Lord, would you remind us that every moment of your life on this planet was a paradigm shift for the thinking and the actions of people and that your transformative work, as was even prayed this morning for the missions trip that is going on, it's you and you alone, Lord, but you do that work. You transform lives. Help us, Lord, to... uh, to mix it up a little bit this week for eternity's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.